May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be free from harm. May all beings love life. May all beings awaken. Welcome to another QQ Audio podcast. I'm DC Poobah of QQ Audio and QQ Archives, doing our bit to help preserve the legacy of Shunryu Suzuki and those whose paths cross his, and anything else that comes to mind. I pray that you and yours are safe and comfortable, free from economic hardship, and able to get out and do whatever it is you want within the limitation of the universal precept of do as little harm as possible. So today we have a guest, Rick Wicks. Rick lives in Sweden, and he's been there uh, over 30 years. Uh he was born, I think he was born in Iowa, he says, but when he was 11, he moved to Alaska, and um, so I always thought of him as Alaskan, uh, and um, uh, he has a very interesting <laughs> uh, story. His life just goes from one place to another, but he did make it into Tatsahara in 1971. For one night, and then he got back there in 74, I, I think I got this right, um, to be a student. And I was there then. I was there both times. He should have looked me up when he came in in 71. He could have stayed. Uh, and I remember him. And there's pictures of him uh, sitting in the Zendo. Uh, the, the pictures that uh, Jake Fishman took. Uh, if you go to shinryusuzuki.com, photos, um, and those photos now are in the, in the Shinryu Suzuki photo archive, I think. But anyway, you can find them in there. Uh, you can search for his name. Um, oh, and if you go, look, here's another way to get it. You can go to the photo page on cuke.com, and uh, there's a link to Jake Fishman's photos. Anyway, uh, so uh, now also on cuke.com, there's a lot from Rick Wicks. He's written pieces. He's he's sent uh, uh, photographs. Uh, he tells, you know, various things, why he came to Zen, his trip through uh, uh, parts of uh, Eastern Europe, uh, and which includes uh, time at and a report on uh, Johannes Sof, uh, Richard Baker's uh, Dharma Sangha retreat in the Black Forest. Um, he's got a piece on him and his father. They're all really good. He's got a piece on on uh, uh, what it's like living in Sweden. <laughs> it's interesting. And he talks about that at the first of the podcast and um, gets into various things. Uh, so, look, uh, that's enough of all that. So as soon as we've had our pause to meditate, we'll uh, give Rick Wicks a call. So when you hear the bell, if you're of such a mind, hit pause and meditate or whatever for as long as you wish. And when you're ready to come back, hit unpause. And we'll be here to hit the bell to end the meditation or whatever. And we'll give Rick Wicks a call. 
Hello. Hi, Rick. Hi, David. How are you doing? All right. How are you? Good. Ah, here we are. So, yeah. so uh, what are you up to? What's happening? Well, um, other than that, uh, what, what's, um, what's it like for you in Sweden? Uh, well, we've been, yeah. Yeah, well, I was going to say, I've received very interesting reports. There's a lot, uh, uh, from you on cuke.com. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but oh, I want to hear you say, say it. Yeah. Well, we've lived here for 30 years. My wife is Swedish. We met in Bangladesh and, um, by, mm. by accident traveling in the Sundarbans in the, in the swamp jungle. I had spent a year traveling around India and, Including Sri Lanka, Nepal, or Sri Lanka, Pakistan, Nepal, and then Bangladesh in that order. Uh, every three months, I would leave India and go to somewhere else, and then back to India. And mm-hmm. So at the end, I met her in Bangladesh and came to came to Europe. Spent a year in Europe after that, traveling around and half the time with her. And then she came to Alaska, where I'm from. We got married, and we moved to Washington D.C., where we lived for six years, and then we moved here. Yeah. Uh, after our daughter was born, I thought. Uh, I liked Eleanor's parents, and they were here. And I, my family was scattered, and her, she had a sister here who was also pregnant at the same time, and and other relatives fairly close. And I thought we need more more family around. We need we need a family to raise a you know a larger an extended family to raise a child, and and um, so we yeah. moved to Sweden, thinking we'll give it a couple of years try and. Uh, it was rough men in many ways, m- much of the time, but we've, we've made it. Hmm. I, um, one of my reasons for coming was we just, I have been working for a, an accounting firm or a, fin- uh, a financial, what do I want to say, international financial consulting firm in DC. I had gradually learned accounting and bookkeeping and accounting, uh, self-taught and was working for this international consulting firm and, um, Decided I wanted to study economics. I thought I'm a smart guy, but I, I don't. Under, I've read, we read Marx and Adam Smith and Marx in college, but other than that, I don't. I read the newspapers and I don't understand. Mm. Uh, editorials say that you know, inflation did this and and tax rates are this and unemployment and exchange rates and something, and therefore we should do this. And I what? I didn't, it didn't make any sense. So I wanted mm. to try to understand that, and I so I started studying economics in D.C. And then we found out that cause I was working with economists, so I got them to pay for the tuition, and I started going to the um, University of D.C. and then a few classes at George Washington. Mm. So I, was, I had a little bit of background now in technical economics. I mean, as I say, I went to St. John's College in Annapolis in Maryland, so uh, a very general liberal arts education and very right. excellent education. Right. But I didn't know didn't know much of anything about technical economics. Or technical mathematics. I had, it had a little bit of interaction to calculus in principle, but but not in practice. And so I uh, we, then we heard that the economics program in Sweden was was free and in English because they wanted foreign students, especially um, from third world countries, to be able to come here. And so um, so all those factors combined, and I had always wanted to try to live and work in another country. And so let's do it. So we'll give it a few years and see if it works. And so we're still here, thirty years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I found I found Sweden quite a shock. It's very conservative and very private. Um, I'm I'm rather private and, and probably very, rather conservative myself. But um, 
but I, I, I realized that I need the contact with other people. And like in the States, I mean, there's just casual interactions. If you're in the grocery checkout line, somebody might comment, you know, the person before or behind you might comment on something or, or whatever, things that don't happen here on the, on the tram. One time in the time that we've been here, one time I think somebody has spoken to me on the, on the tram, on the streetcar. <laughs> uh, and that was because I was, I was reading an economics book that was written in a very funny way. And I la- forgot where I was and I laughed out loud and somebody asked me what I was reading. But other than that, I mean, it just doesn't happen. My wife says it happens more to her, but uh, I mean, she's Swedish, and she's a little bit you know, rather defensive about Sweden, of course. But, um, <laughs> but, um, but you know, sometimes somebody might ask for help if they're lost or something. But I mean, usually that's a tourist, and then I'm eager to help them if I know what how to help. Uh, yeah. Something else interesting. I try. I've gradually over the years learned to speak Swedish. Uh, somewhat, it's very hard for me to come up with vocabulary. I can understand Swedish. I can read it, and I can I listen to the radio, uh, talk radio all the time in Swedish, so I can understand it fairly well. Uh, and now it's to the point where often in medical conversations, especially with the doctors, usually speaking English or comfortable yeah. with that, but the other people sometimes don't, and that's fine. They speak Swedish, and I, and I but they understand English, and I understand. And Swedish, so we get by. You know, we speak our own language, and yeah. we can communicate, and that's what's important. So, yeah. uh, uh, Swedes, I've I've found uh, in in you know living abroad that Swedes speak the best English of any people in the world by far. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I was going to say, so on the street, I'm, if I might, I've gotten to the point where sometimes if something is simple, if something's complicated, if on the phone, especially where you don't can't see the person. I may just start in English, <clears throat> but if it's simple and if I'm in person, I'm, I'm probably start in Swedish. And uh, sometimes people answer me in English. You know, they hear immediately that I'm not a native speaker, and they answer me in English. It's rather insulting. But, <laughs> but what can you do? I have that happen here all the time yeah. in Indonesia. Yeah. Yeah. Really? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, yeah. So it's been interesting. But people on the street don't don't look at you in the eye. You know, they don't meet your eye. So, I mean, just casual things like that where you feel very... I spent, after about two years, I was feeling very frustrated. I started trying to... I started formally trying taking Swedish classes after the first two years. The first two years, I was struggling trying to deal with the economics classes because I was way over my head. But after two years, of, I was starting to get a little bit grounded there. And then I started taking Swedish classes. And that probably contributed to my frustration. But somehow during that period, I'm not not exactly sure how early it started, but I've, I've, there were there were days and months and maybe years when I walked around saying "damn Swedes, damn Swedes," because <laughs> just there was no contact. You know, I didn't feel didn't feel any contact with anybody. Oh God, it's so opposite here. Really? Yeah, Everybody sure, yeah. is friendly and says, "I walk uh-huh. down there." I, you know, I I work a lot at home, and sometimes yeah. I just go out. Walk down the street just to say hello to people. You know, they, hey, where yeah, are you going? Right, you know, in Indonesia, right. where, where are you going? What's happening? Uh, yeah. And yeah. Um, I can easily get in a conversation with somebody. Now, um, it's interesting. I've traveled in places where, you get, like Bangladesh maybe or maybe Indonesia, you get on a bus, an empty bus, the next person gets on and sits down next to you. Uh-huh. Here, uh-huh. here the bus could be could be 
you know, everybody looks for a separate seat. You know, nobody would sit down with anybody else if there's a if there's an available right. set of double seats that are free. So yeah, you were right. going to say, go ahead. Um, that um, uh, the foreigners here, yeah. when you're passing, if they're Australians, they're oh yeah, good day, mate. You know, yeah, good day. Right. Uh, how's it going? Uh, if it's, uh, it's, if Americans are generally friendly. Uh, um, English aren't necessarily bad. Uh, uh, the, the ones that I try to be careful about because I don't want to impose on them are the Northern Europeans. Uh-huh. But, yeah. but I think they, you know, they have so many people speaking to them here. That yeah. uh, they they must soften up some because it's, oh yeah yeah and they they tend to appreciate it because people every now and then I read the paper here every day and I read the letters to the editor and every now and then there'll be a letter to the editor that says I've been out traveling and people are friendly why aren't we friendly to each other you know why don't we uh, speak to each other say so, yeah mm. that's right <laughs> well that's Sweden has a very good reputation in many ways uh, yeah. Uh, for uh, social services and absolutely. Uh, so, what would you say that? I mean, it just seems to me like Sweden, Northern European countries are also an example of how to organize yourself. Um, yeah, and that's hard to do. It's very hard for countries to be successful. Uh, are you having a lot of trouble with uh, right wingers there because of all the foreigners uh, you've let in? Well, yeah, it's, it's the trouble with the, actually, to be honest, and and my my wife is is much more critical than I am of the of the foreigners and of, of Muslims in particular. She's quite afraid of of being taken over by Muslims. I don't have that fear myself, but uh-huh. uh, but yeah, the Sweden in particular has taken has more immigrants per capita. Than any other country, I think. And of course, Germany has a lot more in, in total numbers, but Sweden has more per capita. And <clears throat> took them in without. I mean, to me, that's fine if you mobilize to deal with it. And I think with Eleanor, my wife also <clears throat> would would say, "Yeah, but we just haven't. We we're, we're not dealing with it. We haven't. We haven't the teachers. We haven't the social workers. We haven't the housing." Uh, so people end up in 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 Sweden as opposed to the states. Poor people end up in the suburbs rather than in there's no there's no ghetto or whatever central core that's a slum area, but the but the and the and the suburbs the immigrant suburbs don't look bad to me I I don't mind being traveling there and you know they feel safe they look safe, but there's lots of in Sweden in particular much more than other countries in this area there's gang criminal warfare between gangs. Uh, people find it hard to believe who, who, you know, have a reputation from Sweden from 20 or 30 years ago. <clears throat> but um, we have we have bombings, we have um, gang murders. Uh, what type of gangs? Now, are, you were on the Muslim drug gangs. It's uh, you know criminal gangs. It's, so it's you're like not talking clan, about Muslims now. Well, it's clan based. It's not. I mean, they're not. They're not Muslim gangs per se. They're but they're clan-based gangs, which means, which implies that they're pretty much Middle Eastern, I think. Oh, okay. Um, so they are yeah. Middle. You mean they're Middle Easterners? There have gangs and and well, that's yeah. the problem. You mean they're bringing in violence 
yeah. that didn't exist and doesn't exist in the um, in the, the 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 default population, whatever you call it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, that's what well, that. Yeah. Well, they're yeah. asking and, for and, it. They're going to get that. You know, right wingers will take hold of that and oh yeah, and get in office. Sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, and the right wingers, the Swedish, the the I have very little sympathy for right wingers, and uh, almost none in the states, except to acknowledge sometimes they have an issue, but I don't agree with their solutions. <clears throat> but in but here, um, my wife is on the verge of voting for this Freya Demokratina, the, the, which is the right, the main right wing party. I mean, we would never. Neither she nor I would ever consider like there are there's there's extreme racist ones uh, the NMR then whatever that is the Nordic something front or something um, which are kind of skinhead racist people. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I hear Jimmy Okerson and people compare him to Hitler and they say that it has a the the Sverige Demokraterna the Swedish Swedish Democrats um, that it has a Nazi past that, you know, 30, 40 years ago, maybe some of those people flirted with Nazism. I don't know. I guess that's probably true. <clears throat> but I hear Jimmy Okerson, the leader, talk, and he doesn't sound at all like Hitler to me. <laughs> He's not ranting and raving. He sounds quite reasonable. Yeah. Saying, Look, we've got problems. We need to deal with them, and we haven't been dealing with them. And for a long time, he was the only one saying so, or his party. And the other parties were saying, no, that's racist to even acknowledge that there's any problem. And yeah. no, I don't think so. I think there's really a problem, and we need to deal with it. I'm, I'm not up for throwing them all out, or you know, or th- slamming the door or something. But but we need to mobilize to deal with the problem. Right, and, right. Uh, the leading both, progressive. Both in, yeah. Go on, yeah. go on. Well, but like I'm saying we need to mobilize in two ways. One is we need Sweden is extremely lax in its judicial system, and you know the punishment system all the time. And that doesn't just apply to these kinds of crimes, but other kinds of crimes, too. All the time we hear about the the lower court judged somebody guilty, and then the, the upper court found a way to let him off. And you think, what? I mean, it was a, it was a rape. It was a, clearly a rape. And, the, and then the, and the upper court says, no, but maybe they were asleep. Or, you know, who knows? What? Yes, I know. Um, there's there's bizarre things that happen all the time. So the, the Swedish judicial system, it seems like, is has just gone way off off mm. the rails. Um, but mm. on the other hand, we also need and people. But on the left, people are saying quite rightly that we need to mobilize more for for uh, schools and social welfare, social work, and 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 um, more free time activities and whatever we need. To, and it's largely the second generation immigrants who are a problem. Who the first generation, uh, for the most part, they came and earlier on and Sweden has by the way Sweden has had a good experience with immigration ever since the 50s and 60s when after the war because Sweden was not not in the war of course in World War II and was not destroyed by the war as the rest of Europe was and so Sweden's factories were humming fulfilling orders for the rest of Europe and Sweden needed workers and lots of Turks and Italians and and the Greeks and others from that area, from southern Southern Europe, came in and have been integrated for the most part. Uh, or some of them went, went, got, you know, made some money and went home again. But a lot of them right. stayed and integrated. And uh, after that, in 19, in the 70s, there were a lot of Chileans who came from from Chile after the Pinochet revolution. Oh yeah, yeah, and uh. um, others from 
Uruguay. I meet a lady on the bus all the time who came from Uruguay at that time. Um, mm. And um, so there have been whole waves during the 80s that was from Iran and Iraq during that war. And then mm. from the 90s from Kosovo and uh, all the former Yugoslav countries. Mm. Um, more recently from Somalia. Uh, there's lots from Iran. Now there's lots from Afghanistan. Um, there have been a lot of in in 19, 2015 was a huge wave of immigration. Uh, a lot came from Afghanistan, and a lot of uh, single um, uh, single men coming alone, and young men, children, children coming, unaccompanied children, uh, at maybe at the age of 15 or something. And if they're under 18, they get special treatment, and so a lot of people. They ditched any ID that they might have and claimed to be under 18, even though they clearly were older. And so there's lots of lots of frustration here about that. How, what, how do you deal with that? What do you do? Hmm. Um, so there's. But anyway, but a lot of the first, most for the most part, first generation people have been thankful for a chance to work and to try to find a, play, a way to live and make a living. And uh, but the second generation have grown up with poor language skills for the most part. And in the suburbs, in the suburban schools, maybe uh, almost nobody speaks good Swedish, including the teachers. So the kids grow up not speaking good Swedish, and then it's harder to get a job. And and um, Swedes are very... Um, uh, it helps a lot to have a Swedish name. Some people recently, there were articles in the paper about people, probably Muslims are people from the Middle East with with um, Middle Eastern-sounding names, who changed their name to get to a, a Swedish-sounding name and had much better luck oh, yeah. in response to job applications. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So, and it's to the point where um, Sweden, I mean, Sweden is a fairly small country. In California, which is a lot bigger than Sweden, I wouldn't think about <clears throat> was this meat grown in Sweden, or you know, was this is this produce from Sweden? I mean, from from California. But here it's it's like, but you know, every, was this meat from Sweden? Was this whatever? Um, well, wait a minute, couldn't it be from Denmark or from Norway or <laughs> Britain or Ireland or you know someplace? Does it matter? Um, but there's uh, there's a lot of focus, uh, you know, a lot of. Well, uh, I don't know what the right word for that is, but yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. The, isn't Sweden part of the uh, Euro? Uh, uh, it's it's Euro? EU, but not it's EU, but not the Euro. Yeah, I voted for the for the Euro for the EU in the mid nineties, I think, and uh-huh. but voted against joining the Euro, which what, probably are, at the time I voted for the Euro, but I but it, but it turned out to be a good move when the in the two thousand eight crash. Sweden survived fairly well because it had an independent monetary policy. So, uh, 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 but it's part of the European Union. Part of the European Union, and as as, as you probably know, has applied to join NATO. It's being blocked by Turkey, and secondarily by Hungary, which is a huge source of frustration. For a long time, when we came here, and NATO was off the off the off the board. It was not was hardly ever even mentioned as a possibility. And gradually it became more mentioned. And then with the invasion of Ukraine, suddenly it flipped. And suddenly, let, yeah. uh, it's obvious we should be in NATO. And, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. But, yeah. but uh, so it's very much frustration that we're not in yet. Yeah. Because of Turkey. 
So what what, what have you done uh, work-wise there? Have you been uh, working in the economy realm? Yeah, I well, I I, uh, I spent twenty years getting a doctorate in economics, and during that, <laughs> <laughs> and during that time, I edited uh, in mostly economics, edited in English, of course, um, other people's uh, theses or um, book chapters or conference presentations or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, both for professors and for other students. Occasionally, mm-hmm. something medical. Mm-hmm. Which I enjoyed mm-hmm. also. I didn't understand the, what all the terms meant, but I just treat it like algebra. You know, it should it should still make sense in some abstract way, even if I don't understand the terms. Uh-huh. And that was uh-huh. that was true with a lot of the economics too. That I didn't. It was beyond my capacity in technical terms, but it should still make sense, and it should be clearly written. And and uh, I find a lot of it badly written. I, I'm a very. Um, uh, I'm a, you have high standards. I have high standards. I, I, I sometimes I will just cross out and say, "No, you've said this already," you know, or, or I yeah, just rewrite. Yeah, you know, this, good, this whole good. Chat, this whole paragraph needs to be rewritten, and here's how to do it. Good, good. I did that. Uh, Go for it, but yeah, I did a little of that in in Japan, and uh-huh. let me tell you, you you wouldn't say it's poorly written. The Swedish is poorly written if you could see. There's so much in Japan uh, that's done in English, you know, yeah. uh, uh, you know, and uh, I, you can make a ton back when well, I was there over 30 years ago. You make a ton of money uh, doing that. But I, I would get now I did very little of it. Just if somebody uh-huh. asked me as a favor, yeah. it, it sometimes would be unintelligible. I just wouldn't know what yeah. they were saying at all. Yeah. Uh but I doubt if you if you have that problem in Sweden. It wasn't quite that bad. But no. Yeah. So let's see. So um, let's go back to your traveling in uh, India and Pakistan and all that. Yeah. Uh, and how old were you then? Uh, I was, must have been about 36. This was 19, well, 78 I made my first trip. <clears throat> so then I was... 32 or turned 32 that year um and that was that time i i um uh, let me think i'm in a minute now i'm getting confused uh that time i had a chance to go to china for um uh when china first opened up after the cultural revolution and um for a 16-day tour the alaska world affairs council had applied to the chinese embassy for for a permit to go to do it, organize a trip, and nobody thought it would be approved, so people hadn't signed up for it. And I heard about it through a friend and immediately signed up, and so I got to go. And um, then I thought, if I'm going to China, I, I'm, I didn't have a whole lot of money, so if I'm going to travel to Asia, I'm going to, I'm not just going to go to China and come home again. So I went to Japan first for a month mm. and tra- traveled around and, and visited a few of the major Aheji and. I forget the name of the one that's in in Yokohama. I think. So Gigi. Yeah, so Gigi, and um, and various in Hiroshima and various other places, you know, and mm-hmm. and um, had a good time for a month there, and then um, it was spent just a night or I think only one night, and uh, in so Gigi, uh, I joined, was able was allowed to join a student group 
uh, I was just Japanese students, you know, that were coming in just to get an introduction to Zen or something. So right. One night in the temple there. Um, then when I had 16 days in China, and then I was traveling with a friend from the States who came uh, and joined me just before we went to China. And then we went to Thailand, Burma, uh, India, Nepal, and then flew back to Bangkok. Oh, yeah, that's a Thai back, back to Bangkok. And then down through Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, over into New, over to um, New Guinea, and because uh, I, I spent a long time researching how to get from Indonesia to New Guinea because I, I was more interested in primitive than, than the alternative would have been to go through Australia. Um, of course, New Guinea to, is Indonesia, part of it anyway. Uh, yeah, Western exactly. So yeah, so we flew to Irian Jaya or whatever it's called now. And um, uh, it's not called once, that anymore. No, it's got a different name now. I think. But once a week, there was a flight that went from um, Jayapur, maybe, or someplace in area, what was then called Irian Jaya, to um, to over in to Mount to um, Mount Hagen, I think is the name, or something in in Papua New Guinea, and um, and then from there out into the South Pacific and Tonga and Fung- Fiji and Tonga and Hawaii and back to to Alaska. So that was 1978. That was five months, and um, and then in, then I then I met a, a Tibetan uh, in Alaska who came who had been in Fairbanks and came down to Anchorage and uh, wanted to organize uh, some meditation activities and so and eventually moved to Anchorage and and he and I and two other friends started a small meditation center there, and so in eighty in. Uh, the end of '82, he was planning to go to India for six weeks to visit friends and relatives, and I said, "Oh, I want to go with." I'd wanted to go back to India. I'd only, you know, I hadn't seen India's huge, of course, and I hadn't managed to see so much of it before. And so, I went with him, and another friend and I also went with. And um, the first six weeks, then we had a, we went up to Dharamsala. We had a, a private audience. He had connections. We had a private audience with the Dalai Lama. Oh, very nice! How was that? Uh, oh, it was, it was quite special. Um, I was I I was planning to stay for a year to travel around India, and I, I so I asked if maybe I could help to teach. What could I do to help Tibetan refugees in India? You know, could I help to teach them English or something? And he was encouraging about that. And. And it was in the middle of the winter, so up in Dharamsala, so it was cold. Oh, wow, very, yeah. Very, very few people around. Right. So, um, so, which is part of the reason, probably, that we had a chance to do that. Yeah. And um, so then and we went to Bodh Gaya, and, and um, to, then we went down south, we went to Mysore, and Tibetan, there are Tibetan refugee, um, uh, Tibetan monasteries and whole refugee communities in the hot plains in the south of India. Where they're trying to grow corn out on the, in what used to be jungle, and um, so we, and he had uh, relatives in some of the monasteries there, so we visited there, and that was that became one of my bases. I went back there a few times later, as well as to there was a refugee community outside of Delhi, where I made a headquarters also for me as I traveled and came back to there, and uh, so as I say after after three months, then I went to Sri Lanka and spent maybe six weeks, three weeks or six weeks, I don't remember, there, and then back again to more, th- more through India, and then up and, and then into Pakistan, 
and then they wouldn't give me another visit to India. But I said, but I've left all sorts of stuff in India. In Delhi, I have to be able to go back. So they gave me a one-month visa, and I went through there and, and then up to Nepal, did some trekking in Nepal, and, um, and then ditched my passport so that I could get a new one and so that I could go back to India again because I figured they wouldn't know that I had... They they weren't computerized enough to to track the fact that I had been there before. And so I got a new passport that didn't show the old visas, but I flew to Bangladesh and before going back into India. So that's when I met Eleanor on a a boat in the the Sundarbans. And um, so then I had planned... I had a grand fantasy when I left Alaska, or, or maybe I developed it while I was traveling, that Americans... And the colonial Americans used to talk about the Grand Tour, which was uh, Rome, London, Rome, Paris, you know, whatever. And I thought the Grand Tour, I got, we, my family, you know, we were pioneers. We had moved west to Alaska and northwest. And, mm-hmm. and um, we got to the end of the, you know, the end of the line. And I thought the Grand Tour must mean Asia, Africa, and Europe. And so now I'd been in Asia, and I thought I would go to Africa and then Europe. I, I didn't manage to make it to Africa on that trip, uh, just a tiny bit later. But um, but then I had plans to go to Europe. So after I met Eleanor, especially then, and uh, I'd started with $20,000, and I'd spent about half of it living very frugally. Of course, one can live cheaply in India. And uh, yeah. I, I still, had, still had about $10,000 left, and so I planned to go to Europe. But my grandmother was having a hundredth birthday in Iowa, so I flew flew to Iowa for that, and then back over to Europe, and then spent that following most of the following year uh, traveling around Europe. Partly half the time with Eleanor, either here in Yurtaborg or or traveling with her in the kind of in the neighborhood around Scandinavia or so, or we did Poland also a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, one time I took a trip into the Soviet Union. At that time, and um, another time, I did a three-month Eurail pass, and uh, but then I would come back each time. I would come back to to is to uh, Eleanor here in Yurtburg, and um, how did you find the Soviet Union? Um, uh, I had I prepared myself by reading um, uh, this uh, what's it called the Ark. Uh, Solzhenitsyn. Oh, yeah, that's what I was wondering. Oh, you prepared yourself <laughs> by reading the Solzhenitsyn. Is that what it's called? Yeah, that's like right. Yeah. Uh, watching a horror movie to prepare for an acid trip. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I was quite nervous about going out. And so, and uh, other, I was with, from, it was a student group of mostly, much, fairly much younger people. And they were just out the first day and wherever, feeling very free, and I was a little bit nervous, or I guess, whatever, and more hesitant. But eventually I was out all around it, and um, I was quite struck several times by, uh, for example, they took us, it was all a planned tour, of course, um, but I could get away from the tour occasionally. They took us to a monastery outside of Moscow somewhere, and then but during the time that they were showing us around, I split and went over into the nearby village where it was obvious that it was very poor. There were uh, hand pumps, hand water, you know, water pumps on the corner of the street for people who would come and get water. They had no running water in the houses, right? And um, things like that. They took us to the big space fair where 
showed off all their fancy space technology, of course. Uh, mm-hmm. But when you went to find some food, there was a, quote, fast food place where you were in line for an hour, and there was only one choice or something. And I mean, it was just very limited. It was very, it was, uh, you know, it was not what, not what we're used to. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, at the end, I managed, I was, um, we were supposed to have it all. Everything had to be arranged and where you were going to stay and everything. But I figured out that if I could, I could take a night train to Estonia and then have a day, free day there and then take a, take a boat over back to Finland. <clears throat> so I had a free day in Estonia just to wander around. So, uh, mm. enjoyed that too. And mm. I went, I, I took it, got time, you know, slipped away. I think they went to the, to the World War II graveyard in in um, Leningrad, St. Petersburg, and while, but while they did that, um, which I'm sure was extremely moving after the siege of Leningrad, um, but I went to I went to the Dostoevsky house, and you know where he had lived or whatever kind of museum or something for Dostoevsky. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, mm-hmm. I, our our um, our guide was quite friendly and nice and so and. And uh, asked, well, well, yeah, I guess I asked her. They would talk. There was talk about this is this this is where they used to hold the prison political prisoners. And I said, so where do they hold the political prisoners now? And of course, she said, oh, there are none. You know, but, you're right. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. um, um, I had similar experiences, a little bit similar experiences in China when we traveled to China. It was in 1978. It was a totally organized trip. And um, I had brought a copy of um, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, because mm. somehow I had heard that there was a, that there might still exist uh, something in English called the Chinese Buddhist Association. And so when we got to Beijing, I, we were at a restaurant, and in the afternoon we were scheduled to go to some shopping to you know place where they wanted us to go shop. And my friend and I thought we don't want to do that. We would do something else, and they didn't. They wouldn't let us off the tour. But we said, okay, then we'll go back to the hotel. So we so we got in a taxi, but we didn't go back to the hotel. Instead, I we were at a restaurant, and I asked the um, I, I dialed one one two because that's what you dial in the states for information. Or did at that time, and huh. and amazingly, it worked. Maybe it was old American equipment or something. I don't know. And, and and then I got a person at the restaurant to translate for me, and I asked for the address, you know, calling information, asked for the address for the Chinese Buddhist Association, and we got an address. So we got a taxi and went there, and there were these old Buddhist priests, you know, probably about as old as I am now, and not speaking any English, of course, and totally mystified as to what we were doing there, and probably scared out of their wits that Westerners had come to visit them. And I gave them this book with this, you know, the wonderful picture of Suzuki Roshi on the back wow. of the book, smiling picture. And uh, then we left, and I don't remember any more about it than that. But I suspect they they were probably visited by the secret police after that. I don't know. Uh, anyway, yeah, maybe not. That sounds pretty harmless. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. I think they'd be more concerned about you taking pictures of old. Uh, you know, things with character rather than something new and shiny they wanted you to uh, bring back to America, that image. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, I've heard that, that sort of thing uh, before. Um, and that's pretty early on. What year was that? 
This was 78. It was right after the fall of the, right after the Cultural Revolution. It was just starting to open up wow. after the Gang of, Gang of Four. So the universities were still closed. We had a, a the president of the Alaska University was uh, in Anchorage was with us, and he wanted to, to um, talk with somebody when we were in, we went to, we went to Sion. It was, it was right when, outside of Sion is a, a huge grave, field or whatever that they had just discovered and it was in National Geographic with all these terracotta statues of warriors and whatever. Oh, right. We had, we had just seen it in National Geographic and we said we have to go there. It wasn't on our schedule, but everybody insisted we have to go there, of course, and so they rearranged so that we could do that. Oh, good. And then, yeah, and then while we were there in the town, I, I don't remember what they had planned at one point where the this uh, university president from Anchorage and my friend and I slipped off and went to the university and went looking for, and it was closed, so it was quite empty, um, but we found some high administrator, and because this um, person we were with, our, you know, our, our administrator wanted to talk to their administrators and, and managed to have a conversation a, a bit about what it was like to be reopening schools. I don't remember anything about the conversation, wow. unfortunately, but but that was kind of fun, too. Wow. Those were the two, two times when we got away and did something Otherwise, it was like they showed us acupuncture and took us to an ivory carving factory and, yeah. you know, the kind of yeah. standard things. But. Well, it sounds like uh, actually it was pretty good compared to some stuff I've heard back then. Um, uh-huh. So you had a copy of Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. I'd like to go back now to, uh, wait, wait, you know, there's some path that led you to Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, to Zen Sin. Yeah. What's, yeah. what's your what's your oldest? Where were, you're from Alaska? You were born there. I was born in Iowa, and we moved to Alaska when I was eleven. Uh huh. And then what, I went. To, mm-hmm. Yeah. And you what? Uh, then uh, I went to St. John's College in Annapolis for two years. Right. That's then, a that's a great books college. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. then I finished up in Santa Fe, which is a, a, another campus of the same college. Right. Uh, and graduated there in 1968. And then I was back in Alaska and taught school for a year uh, in a native village, which was a disastrous experience. I didn't know anything about teaching. And um, mm. um, But then I had, meanwhile, and of course, I was facing the draft. So this is 68, ahead of the Vietnam War. And... Um, I wrote a, a conscientious objector uh, claim f- to this to the um, selective service, but meanwhile I also looked at uh, graduate schools or professional, you know, whatever else educational alternatives, and I came up with the idea. I convinced myself that um, there, I discovered a Unitarian theological school in Berkeley, Star King School for the Ministry, which yeah. I thought which I was not interested really in ever in being a minister, but I thought this sounded like a good program that would develop, help me develop whatever, lead me in the right yeah. direction. And um, so I applied there, and I got accepted. Eventually the CO, well, I think the CO thing was eventually, the CO thing was strange because I was out teaching in Nondalton in this little Indian village, and the Anchorage Selective Service Director had uh, the, the the local board had voted against me, and the local director I had talked to, and he liked me apparently, and uh, I had written a very philosophic 
CO. I mean, you're supposed to be supposed to be a religious, very convinced. You know, like if you grew up with a very strong pacifist religion or something, which I didn't. I just wrote a very philosophic thing about why this I wasn't going to do this. And, and but he apparently liked me. He had the power to send the decision to another board for review, so he sent it down to Juno. And Juno invited me to come for a for an for an interview. And but that would have meant I had to charter a flight into Anchorage and then get a flight down to Aunt Juno and back and then charter back out to my where I was working in the little town of Nandalton. And it would have been quite expensive and I just wasn't at all sure that I would that it would help and you know, whatever. I thought, No, I'm not doing that So I didn't go. And so but they voted in favor of me, three to two. So when I got back to Anchorage later I looked in the file and the one person had written, uh, if he'd come here and explained, I might have voted for him, but he didn't, so I can't support it. Another person said, he obviously feels so strongly about it that he didn't even bother to come, so I voted for him. So, I thought, uh-huh. so it, didn't make, it didn't make any difference, right? Right. <laughs> so, so I got the CO thing, but meanwhile I had been accepted to, um, to Star King. So I went there for a year, and on the way there... I, w- I drove to New York to visit an old girlfriend and then drove across. She and I actually drove across to Santa Fe. And um, and and in Santa Fe, uh, or in New Mexico, I was I had a, a little truck with um, a Toyota truck with a camper shell on the back. Mm-hmm. And I picked up some hitchhikers, and they were riding in the back. And when they got out, they left a book. And... It didn't have any cover on it, but I liked books. You know, I'd been to the Great Books College, and and so I looked at the book. And I, if I'm remembering right, I believe it was um, Three Pillars of Sin. Although yeah. I, my memory is that it was much bigger than the than the copy of the book I've seen now. So maybe it was something different. It was but pretty anyway, big. It was, it was pretty big back then. Yeah. Well, I've seen it. We have a, I have a copy now from the library because we've been reading it in our little Zen study group here. And it's quite small version, so I don't know. Huh. Maybe it was huge print or something, or I don't know why. But my memory was, it was rather big, but it had no cover. But I liked it. I looked at liked books. I kept it. And so when I got to Berkeley, um, then while I was in this in Star King School, then I read that book. So that was my introduction to Zen. And then um, Star King itself had a. I had one class where I think that was kind of introduction to Buddhism and Hinduism and Buddhism or something. And uh, and it was kind of in the air around that time. And then then I heard about, at some point I read Zen Flesh, Zen Bones also. Um, Great book. Yeah. And then um, I heard about uh, Tassara Bread Book. And I picked Mm. that up because I have a friend from St. John's who lived in um, Los Angeles, who was who loved to bake bread. So I thought, oh, I'll, I'll get this book for her. I bet she'd enjoy this book. But before I sent it, I read about Tassahara. I said, oh, I have to go visit Tassahara. And so after one year at the school, then I dropped out and I was working at um, Napa State Hospital with autistic children. Oh, wow. And um, very severely autistic. I mean, headbangers, kids who, who spent all day long uh, mm. banging their heads or... You know, or listening oh. to uh, listening to the grate where the sounds uh, came out of the out of the floor vent or something. Mm. Um, uh, but I liked I, I identified with those kids. I've I've uh, identified as autistic ever since. Success. I heard the phrase successfully uh, successfully autistic, and I thought, oh, that's me. 
Um, but um, so I, while I was there, and then sometimes we had a three-day weekend, and uh, I would so I took a weekend and drove down to Tassajara. And yeah, give me funny. the give me the year, would you? Uh, this would have been nineteen seventy, I believe. Uh huh. Yeah, would you know the time of year? Seventy seven. No, it was seventy one. It would have probably been probably May, perhaps May of seventy one. Yeah, it was yeah. summer. We'd, we'd be summertime. open then, you yeah. know. Yeah, it was open. Um, so I was driving down. Um, my truck was developing an engine problem. I had picked up, picked up a hitchhiker on the road in from after um, whatever the name of the little place, Jamesburg, heading in on the road. I picked up a you know picked up a hitchhiker perhaps there or somewhere. Yeah, um, uh, who was heading in, and then. The engine was acting badly and had losing power, and so I couldn't pull the hill. And so we pulled over and stopped, and and somebody else came by, somebody else who had already picked up a hitchhiker and now picked up the two of us. So now there were four of us in a car going in. It felt like something out of Pilgrim's Progress or Chaucer's Tales or something where I don't know how what the similarity is exactly, but it occurred to me. Somehow it seemed like one person picking up another and another and another. And We all ended up in there. We got to the gatehouse. Uh, it was summer, you know, it was visitor season, and guest season, and um, suddenly I remembered that I had a little boil on my leg, and they talked about we can use the hot baths. I said, oh, uh, is, uh, I, have a, oh I remembered I have a boil on my leg. I said, okay. And, uh, and the guy who was very enthusiastic said, oh, a healing, he said. So, <laughs> so, he, so he, gave us, uh, he gave us our towels, and so, and, um, and we went in, and uh, we were just there as day guests, of course, and then... Uh, uh, so after a while, we we split up and we wandered around. And and after a while, somebody said, well, I ran into one of the other ones, and he said, "Oh, we can join him for 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 meditation if we want to." But I didn't really know what that meant. I had read, um, I guess, probably um, uh, three pillars of Zen and Zen slash Zen bones. But I didn't really have any sense of meditation. And I thought this feels sacrilegious to to go in and to do do this when I don't know really what it is. So I didn't do it. But um, by then it had gotten late, and too late to, and there was nobody leaving. No, no, no way for us to get back out. The two of us, I guess, the other two maybe had had rooms had re- reserved or something. But the two of us who had I had picked up uh, were day visitors, and so we asked at the gatehouse, "What can we do?" And the guy said, "Well, you can sleep in the gatehouse as long as you leave early, so nobody knows." So we did that, and we caught a ride out with two women who left quite early. You know, so was I nice. was assistant director then. Yeah. And if you'd come to me, I would have, you know, you wouldn't have had, I mean, you wouldn't have, you know, sleeping in the get house is all right. But, yeah. you know, you could have eaten there and stuff. You you had a broken down car on the road. You had a right. per- perfect right. excuse. You yeah. You could have hung yeah. out. Yeah, yeah, but we didn't know that. So it worked out fine. So we we got out early in the morning, and then I went back to Berkeley, and then, I called Berkeley Zendo and to ask about getting instruction, and uh, they probably told me the instructions at six and and uh, regular zazen's at six thirty or something. Somehow I got confused and I went at six thirty, and so I missed <laughs> the instruction. But somebody said, "Well, just go upstairs anyway," and so I did. And then and Mel was sitting there facing the facing the stairs and nodded to me to take a seat. Uh, Oh, oh, you know, over to the far end of the row of people, and so I did that, and 
I didn't, but I didn't really see how people were sitting, and I didn't have any experience of really of what it meant. So I was hunched over, and I just kind of sat down. I'd realized cross legs too, but I sat down. I was crunched over, probably probably had my eyes closed, so I didn't have any sense of what other people were doing. After a while, my back was hurting, so I'm moving moving this way and that way, trying to relieve my back. Nobody said anything, and uh, so that was fine. But then I then I next the next week I found out when the instruction was and went for instruction and then I figured out how to you know learn how to do and um uh so then I went to went there frequently uh, for mm. about a year or so and um and then at some point I decided I was taking classes I had decided after working with autistic kids I wanted to be a psychiatrist and um for poor motives, I think. I think I just wanted the authority of the of the degree. I wasn't, as opposed to when I studied economics, it was because I wanted to understand it, you know. Um, but at that time, I wanted to. I thought I should be a psychiatrist, and so I started doing pre medical sciences at Grove Street College, which was the old Merritt College in Oakland. Oh, and uh-huh. then, and then um, after a year or so there, I went over to San Francisco State to take some more classes. And at that point, I moved into the neighborhood of, of Sen Center, you know, just down on Page Street, mm-hmm. and uh, got a room for the summer. And during that summer, I got the bright idea to shave my head. It occurred to me afterwards, there's probably not much better way to, to um, get attention than to shave your head. And so immediately... Um, uh, uh, Debbie Madison, is that her name? Right. Asked if I would like to, to move in. So I moved in. in oh, that is that's so. cool. That's funny. Yeah. 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 And meanwhile, my my I had a roommate in this little little apartment, literally a roommate. We had a small room with one with a single bed. So he was sleeping on the floor at his suggestion, and his, he volunteered, and I was I had the bed. And um, But he had a brown robe that apparently they used at um, in Rochester, and but oh. he was he uh-huh. was leaving and and was didn't he want he want I don't know for some reason he gave me the robe, and so I was wearing the robe. I and remember I that. I, I can yeah. see you in it. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> later I realized that Baker Roshi wore a brown robe and everybody else wore black robes and here I was with a brown robe, and um, that's but nobody, true. Nobody said anything. Nobody minded. Seemed to be right. And um, that, so and after, uh, that's because it wasn't. In the style of uh-huh. of, of Baker's robe, you know Perhaps what I mean. Not, yeah. So it was yeah. clearly something else. But yeah, it, yeah, that 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 robe. wasn't <laughs> generally done. But uh, you were no. forgiven. <laughs> yeah. So then, um, when I moved in, then of course, then they offered me a, a black robe. So then I sent the brown one back to the to this friend who had given it to me, and uh, then I was there for a year, and then. Uh, had a chance once to bake bread with um, uh, uh, the name is slipping my mind. Who wrote the bread book? Ed uh, Brown. Ed Brown. One early one morning, he came through the hallway saying, "Anybody, when we're getting up to go to Zazen, he said, anybody want to learn to bake bread?" And I, sure. And like I and then one or two other people went down with him to the kitchen and baked, learned to bake bread. And um, uh, huh. another and another time. At Christmas, before Christmas, I I we have my grandma, my mother's whole family, her ancestors are all Dutch, and we had a Dutch uh, tradition of having what we called orange bread, the Venterkoek, which is um, 
uh, a cake, a, like a fruit cake made with candied orange peel. And before Christmas, I thought to make a lot of those and send them out as gifts to friends and relatives and people, and also to do for a Sunday breakfast at the at Sun Center. And um, so I peeled about a hundred oranges, I think, and and was candying them, which sent a huge, terrific aroma of candying orange peel in through the building. So Baker Roshi came in to visit, and I like to think that that was a precursor to the to live. a year or two later they started doing fruit cakes. Um, ah, yeah. As, a, as, a, as an old monastic tradition, and I right. like to think that maybe I helped to inspire that. Right. Um, anyway, <laughs> so then after, after uh, then in the in the spring, I was I I was taking still taking classes at San Francisco State, um, but I got well for one thing I got into a I got into a physical chemistry class that was way way over my head, so that was frustrating. And anyway, I just decided that this, I was telling you, I took neurology or, you know, whatever, brain, brain anatomy course that was interesting. But I thought all this is, I thought I saw meditation seemed like a much more direct, much more immediate thing to me um, that I needed to focus on. And um, so I remain interested, of course, in, in um, neurochemistry and, and brain physiology and whatever, but... Um, um, but anyway, so I just decided uh, in May or so, yeah, early May, I think I dropped out of school and and uh, went down to Tassajara. And what spent year? The there. Uh, that would have been 74, uh, I believe. Some may have 74. Uh, yeah, I was uh, head monk. Very possibly. Yeah. yeah, you were there definitely. I, I, I was in monk yeah. the prior practice period and uh-huh. continued that role throughout the summer. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah, nice yeah. job. You know, I didn't have to do anything in particular. Clean the <laughs> toilets, I think. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I did that. Yeah. A baker yeah. wanted me to work, do stonework, and oh, I yeah. never wanted to. Oh, uh, uh-huh. he is a little mad at me because. It just wasn't my trip. And there were so many people that just loved doing it. I said, let, let yeah. them do it. You know? Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, I got a job with um, Pat Phelan in, in the cleaning, cabin cleaning crew. Oh, really? And, yeah. So I, my summer was with her and uh, Lana, somebody. Lana. And, uh, Lana Berman. Lana. Yeah, exactly. And... Um, in the in the cleaning crew, I was very lonely and 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 quote fell in love with Pat Phelan and she was very um, supportive and friendly but um, made it clear that that wasn't happening and uh-huh. um, uh-huh. Um, and gradually I got over that that's not the not the first time nor the last that 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 I've have been in that situation I have it. Uh, a, ten- a tendency to be dependent on find find a woman and throw myself at her. Um, uh, eventually, it, eventually, I didn't happen with Eleanor, and we've had a good relationship with with our ups and downs, of course. But but it didn't go through a phase like that. Uh-huh. Um, but um, then, in the, so during the summer, I was uh, we were cleaning cabins, and occasionally I would see a leaking faucet or something. I thought I can fix that. Um, I had a plumbing merit badge from Boy Scouts. I think that was about my only 
uh, plumbing <laughs> yeah, experience. Great. I had I had mechanical experience a little bit from one summer I ran boats, ran a patrol boat for the Alaska Fish and Game Department, and I had repaired motors during that time. So I had a little bit of mechanical experience, and and I had also worked on my I had a truck in in um, San, uh, Santa Fe for two years. I had I had an old old truck that was very open and international, fifty two international pickup truck that was real easy to work on. And so I had take, taken it apart and done lots of work on that. So anyway, I felt mechanically competent. So I would mention that, oh, I can fix this. And so I, so then she, I suspect that she suggested to the work leader or to somebody that I would could be the plumber. So during the two practice periods that followed, I was the plumber. You wouldn't have been on cabins, I can tell you, if, if uh, we'd known you you were uh, you could do plumbing and and mechanical. Good lord. <laughs> yeah. Well, I enjoyed being the plumber. I liked being independent, and it didn't. <laughs> a funny thing, I didn't realize that I was part, of, technically part of the shop crew, or really part of the shop crew. And yeah. so, and I liked being independent. I didn't want anybody telling me what to do. And so, finally, after a long time, I don't remember if it was in the fall or in the spring. Finally, somebody, the, the head of the shop crew, at some point, said, "You know, you should really come and check in. You know, bow in with us and bow out with us." And so, oh, oh okay. <laughs> so I did that after that, but I hadn't realized. So, yeah, well, but, look, uh, if you were, if you knew what you were doing with plumbing, you you could be very independent there. They're mm-hmm, happy yeah. to let you do that, and they can deal with other things. Yeah, and and, right. and then by then I was director, so I mm-hmm. I, I remember you there. You know? mm-hmm. 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 So after a year, then I, well, I went for one thing. My my parents. Had, uh, my father hadn't been doing, hadn't been filing his U.S. taxes, because we had a house in Iowa that we rented out after we moved to Alaska, and somehow he he, he had a tendency to get complicated, get lost in details, and maybe the, for some reason he had maybe they had somebody doing some of the accounting for bookkeeping or something in Iowa City for them and they hadn't gotten their records properly or something. Something got screwed up and then he felt like he can't do this year because he hadn't done last year because you have to carry the the, the depreciation forward. So he couldn't do it and then so several years had gone by and he hadn't filed U.S. taxes. Probably they didn't owe anything because they're teachers. They didn't have a lot of income anyway and it was getting withheld. But my mother was freaking out and so... I decided I'd go home and, and um, among other things, help out with that. And um, so I so I left after one year. That was my experience at Tassara, although I've been back to visit a few times during the summers. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, well, um, uh, you know, is there anything else you can remember from there? How was your relationship with, uh, with uh, Baker? It was good. Um uh, of course, I didn't know him very well. I had had um, Dukes on a few times. Mm-hmm. Um, I was impressed with him. Um, one time, I remember I, I had a bright purple robe that um, a friend had. It was used that a woman, a friend had gotten, uh, had found at a used clothes store, you know, and given to me. And I, I one day I wore it when I was going down to the baths. Probably, probably I wore it more often than that. But one day, when I was wearing it going down to the baths. I ran into Baker Oshi and I was very uh, embarrassed because I thought this is very flamboyant, something that was not appropriate, I thought, here probably. And um, so I was felt very nervous. 
and he just touched the collar of his robe to to indicate that you know that he that he understood that I was concerned about the robe that I was wearing and that it was it was cool you know <laughs> it was no problem <laughs> so mm. I was impressed with that it just just that sign of of understanding and um uh I forget there were there were um, yeah I'd had a I had a, a one one night affair with a woman in in um, in San Francisco, and then then as I mentioned, I I quote fell in love with Pat Phelan, and was feeling desperate and and lonely and so at uh, when I got to to um, Tassajara, and so then I I mentioned that in Dokusan, probably perhaps not the most practice appropriate topic to bring up, but I mentioned that to Baker Oshie and Dokusan. And uh, that because then I had written to this person in in um, San Francisco who I th- treated as a friend, but who had higher expectations of me or different expectations, and and she'd freaked out because I was, you know, I, I guess we'd had this one night affair that she thought maybe would lead to something more, and uh, so I mentioned that to Bigoroshi, and he said, well, you must have learned something. And I thought, oh yeah, okay, that's that's a good attitude. Something <laughs> <laughs> from. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, uh, so and of course, later, much later, he had some some problems of uh, of various sorts, and I thought, well, he's probably learned something of it. So when I went well to visit him, said. So yeah. I, I went to visit him in uh, uh, at his place in southern Germany a few years ago and I said I wanted to see how he was doing but I, I just thought you know he's, he's probably learned something so that's okay so. yeah well how, how was it at uh, Johannesburg? A very nice I had a very good experience uh, it, I was on my way to Athens for um, for a, a Democrats Abroad uh, conference a regional conference there and I thought I would take the train uh, because I, yeah, and, and and I realized that I could take it. I could go by way of Germany first, by way of southern Germany, and so I checked the schedule, checked what was happening there. I'd been aware that he had a center there, but I and I'd thought about going to visit sometime, but I'd never had a, any opportunity in particular. And now I thought, okay, this is an opportunity. Maybe I can do something. And so I checked what was happening there, and there was something scheduled for the weekend before I needed to be in Athens. And it was a retreat for his senior students, I forget, 25 or 30 of his senior students who were coming together for three or four days. And so I wrote and asked if I could join that group, not having any idea really what it was or you know who they were or what it was, but could I come and join? And they said yes. And so they were very cordial and, and friendly and welcoming. And of course, it was all, for the most part, in German. He was speaking English, but there was, everything was translated. And mm-hmm. uh, so when I when I spoke, it was translated in the same way, and and but everybody was very friendly and nice and helpful, and and I had very good contact with him. He seemed very very happy to have me there. Yeah. Um, um, perhaps because I'd come come from way, from way before this problem in the eighties, right? From the seven, you know, from the seventies, and right. And um, yeah, he's uh, we had a very good connection. I enjoyed it. Yeah, and. Yeah, you weren't. You clearly aren't judgmental. Uh, no. Incidentally, on, on there's a page for you, as you know, on cuke dot com, and it's very the the second entry in it. First is my father and me by Rick Wicks. Mm-hmm. The the second is 
Rick's 2019 trip through the Balkans illustrated uh-huh. uh, this PDF uh, or Rick's account with photos uh, of his stay at Johannesoff, Richard Baker's Dharma Sangha yeah. Practice Center. Uh, uh, there's others, a uh, memoir of uh, Zen Center in Tatsahara and uh, how I came to Zen practice. Yeah, I've got a lot from him. What is Zen practice now? Sweden is a monastery. I love that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and an errata in Crooked Cucumber, which incidentally uh, is now, uh, uh, there is a second edition, not as a book, mm. but the, 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 the audio book is second edition, mm-hmm. and there's a second edition in German. Uh, mm-hmm. But, uh, oh yeah, 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 uh, uh, oh yeah, uh, I, you said, oh, you made a mistake, uh, that Germany surrendered in May, not April. Not April, yeah. Right. right. So that's in there, and, and yeah. actually I have all the changes on com that were made. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, I just, uh, Wanted to mention your your you've got all that there, and I'll hey yeah. I'll mention that also in the intro or a- outro for the podcast. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, uh, let, let's just go back to when you when you left uh, uh, Zen Center to go, uh, you left uh, Tassahara to go help your father with uh, and your family with their. Uh, uh, accounting problems. Mm-hmm. Did, did, did that work out? Yeah, um, I got some other some other jobs t- during the summer and fall, uh, construction of one sort or another, and then um, in the spring or early in the about in January, beginning of tax season, I saw an advertisement in the paper for um, uh, a small tax bookkeeping and tax agency that wanted an assistant, so I applied. And not ever having done any any taxes or bookkeeping or anything, but they hired me. I figured I can. I'm good with numbers. I've always been good with with math and good with numbers and so on, and dealing with forms. And so they hired me, and I started working there. And they, it was a small company with it was the 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 man who was the owner and his wife and his daughter who ran his wife and daughter ran the office, and they had and had one assistant who was doing taxes, and then I was the assistant to the assistant. And they started having me just do sample forms and so. But after a short time, the assistant quit, so I moved up and started doing more. And then, two weeks before uh, tax deadline, about around the around the end of March, the the boss's wife convinced him that they needed to take a couple of week vacation and go to Hawaii. And this was right when all the um, <laughs> <laughs> All the taxes were due, of course, and and he was a little bit shady, a little bit was like if you rent to me and I rent to you, we can both deduct and something, and it wasn't quite legit. <clears throat> so a lot of people that he'd been advising didn't want, and he said just put everybody on extension, and I'll deal with them when I come back. But they didn't want to be on extension because they were afraid that being on extension would flag them for an audit. So. I just did everything. Every you know, if they didn't want to be on extension, then I fine. I'll deal with it. So I worked twelve hours a day, seven days a week, and and I was on commission. So I was I was racking up money at at uh, <clears throat> for, for me. I mean, I'd never made that much money before, and um, 
so when they got back, they were not so happy. Of course, I had done all this, and they owed me a bunch of money, and they paid me. But then they then they let me go, <clears throat> and so that was okay. So, but then I then I by now I had figured out I had learned how to do taxes, right? I had had good experience. So then I could help my mother set up. Uh, <clears throat> so I so my mother was the one that I then helped to do it. We set up a bookkeeping system, and she did. We did the last three years of taxes, and they didn't owe anything because it because it was being withheld anyway. So they were probably owed refunds and. So we did a couple of years and let it go with that. We just just guessed, estimated it there, the problem with the depreciation, you know, but yeah. it wasn't a big enough problem to matter. And um, so we did that, and that experience is still still serving me in good stead because a, a Democrats abroad friend and a, and, a, and a, actually a Zen vegan friend. I here I sit with a small group called Zen Vegan, the Zen Way, and uh. a woman, an American woman who I know from both contexts who's recently started coming to sit again with us. Um, just asked the other day, she wants to get straight with her American taxes because she hasn't been doing it, and legally we're required to do it, uh, to file even if we don't owe anything. And so she wants to do that. So I said, sure, I can help you with that. So she's going to come next week, and we'll, we'll get her straightened out, I hope. Mm. And, uh, mm. Yeah, so that, that worked out fine. You and know, I, started my, to, hmm? I had a tax guy who who, who uh, wouldn't file our or maybe he just didn't need anything from me. Mm-hmm. But he'd just tell me. He'd say, oh, you don't even need to file this year. And uh-huh. and he, he was good. Mm-hmm. He was very good. He saved me a mm-hmm. lot of money. Uh, mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, mm-hmm. I just remembered that. So go on. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was going to say, then um, I had one of these relationships where I threw myself at a woman where, where she and she um, – <clears throat> managed to make good use of me for a long time. Um, uh, we started a daycare center together, a child, a child care center and preschool. And uh, Where? Uh, in Anchorage now. This was after, after the, in the spring after I had helped my parents with the taxes. Then we started this uh, preschool and, and uh, daycare center. And but then she dropped out because she got worried that it wasn't going to work, and I stayed with it. We had borrowed six thousand dollars from the from a bank that we had jointly signed as you know a co-signer or whatever, <clears throat> guaranteed the loan. And uh, she thought she said we should just drop out, and we were breaking up anyway. And she said we should just drop out and work to pay off this loan. But I was determined to make the center work, so I remained for two years more uh, as um, director of this childcare center. And uh, see, after the first year, then I took a break and went to Hawaii and visited the Hawaii Zendo, among other things, and also visited um, San Francisco. And see, I, was gonna, I didn't, I didn't get to forget. Yeah, no, I think at that time, I yeah, I also got to uh, went to Green Gulch for a week or something. Then yeah, ah, that's cool. Yeah. And what, what year are we talking then? That would have been seventy-seven, probably. Uh-huh. We opened in '76. So '77, I spent a week at Green Gulch, running hmm. a little. They were trenching to, in order to lay some pipe somewhere, and very hard ground. And I was running this rented trencher tool, what a ditch witch or whatever they're called. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. Um, we man- and managed to. I was using it very hard. I mean, pushing it very hard, and managed to crack the drive shaft and took it into the. Uh, machine shop or you know whatever and, and the the head of the shop there helped 
put helped me to, or he did it. I mean, we repaired it. We put a reinforcing bar on the drive shaft and made it stronger than it had been before. And somebody was another some other Zen student was aghast. What you broke the machine? I said yeah, but we made it stronger than it was before. So, so what? So, <laughs> Anyway, uh, my father came to visit while it must have been that during that time. He came for a couple day or two or something, and um, uh, he he was um, a very special character, uh, as you can know from the from that little story of my father and me. Right. But, um, but he he saw a fallen fruit or fruit on the trees that wasn't being used. Forget if it was plums or what, and he gathered a lot of it and made jam and labeled it very carefully and someone said oh he does things so carefully he's just like a Zen student you know he did, did this so carefully and mm. they were impressed mm. and he, he I don't remember how he sat he probably sat on a chair but he sat with us during at least one meditation period and he said oh that was like sitting waiting for a deer you know sitting in a, right. in a blind waiting for a deer you know so yeah waiting yeah yeah well, that Gary Snyder, uh, I, I quoted him many times, uh, says, uh, wrote something at one point saying that, you know, that's one of the sources, one of the places that meditation must have come out of uh-huh. is the hunter having to be very still for long periods of time waiting for game to come by. Interesting, yeah. Speaking of which, I saw two deer outside my window today. <laughs> oh, well, that's I thought, nice. I thought that was I thought that was an auspicious moment. Yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, there you are, and at some point, you what's what happened between then and going to you went well, you went to India pretty soon after. Yeah, that. so at the end end of another year, or another yeah, in March the the following year was when I had this opportunity to go to um, China. So that's when I when I left for and yeah. for five months and all that and and um, I had not been a good director. I had managed to make the children's center survive, but it had been very stressful, and I didn't have any particular training or knowledge of what I was doing. So the the staff were not all. I mean, uh, I would threaten people. You know, we we have to do this better, whatever something or or not to smoke or whatever something and. And anyway, it wasn't wasn't really a good situation. So when I came back, the people didn't really want me back as director. I had taken a leave and left a temporary director and uh, assistant director and responsible. And um, so I was hurt when I came back. But then I got my fallback when I come back broke from traveling, which has happened more than once, is to find some job doing accounting type work. Yeah. So I got a job just inputting data someplace for a while or some real estate agency. Now, I, I want to I want to go back to Johannesov. Is there anything else you remember about your trip uh-huh. there oh, yeah. you'd like to say? Um, hmm, I don't know. I wrote the, what I wrote down a, a fairly thorough um, description in that in that Baltic trip. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's no, I mean, anything uh, that occurs to you right now. If not, no, no problem. Uh, yeah, no, it was just, it was very nice, very warm and very friendly, and she was very welcoming the whole time, and, and um, uh, yeah, he didn't he didn't remember me, because, I mean, we hardly knew each other at the time, and I wasn't there around for so long. Yeah. But, um, but uh, it was very good. 
Yeah. And I, well, yeah. And I, I to, to tell you the truth, I honestly felt enlightened afterwards. I mean, I felt, I felt like I, we had made a, I felt like we, he and I were connecting directly. Mm. Uh, if that's whatever that means. Yeah. Um, well, it that means was, something because you, like you felt it. Yeah, it felt like we were in the same space. We were in the same universe, something. Hmm. 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 And, and so, um, um, you're, uh, you're sitting with a group now. So like your, your practice has continued in one way or another with maybe with periods of no formal sitting or anything, but you're involved yeah. with the group now. Yeah. Uh, yeah, for some years, well, we had this little group in Anchorage, um, and then, but then we moved to D.C. after I met Eleanor, and we got married, and we moved to D. We got married. We had a, a Buddhist wedding ceremony in Anchorage. Oh. We invited a priest to come up from Minneapolis uh, who performed the wedding. We had a had a weekend session, a two two or two and a half day session, and at the end of that, we had our wedding ceremony. Was it somebody and, uh, from the Minneapolis Zen Center? Right. Yeah. Do you remember who? Uh, the person. Yeah, Dokusai. Um, uh, Mike Poor. I think is his. No, uh, Dokusai. I think is his Buddhist name. Ron Georgeson, I think is his. Oh, uh, American name. Uh-huh. He's the director at. Um, there's a place in Southwest Minnesota, just near the border of Iowa. The access to it is actually through a corner of Iowa. Uh, there's a, a retreat center, um, which he's been the director of for many years. Mm. That's associated with the Minneapolis Zen group, mm. um, and I've been there to visit. It's very nice, and and he's been very helpful and supportive, and so I've been mm. there a few times. Uh, interestingly, within forty miles or something of it, there's another Zen. There's a there's a monastery now. Offhand, I forget the name of the of the priest or the leader there who came back from Japan after some years in Japan, came back with blueprints for a Japanese monastery and is proceeding to build one on those blueprints in northeastern Iowa. Uh, and as I say, it's within 40 miles of this other other place. Huh. Uh, kind of interesting that these two places are so close together. I've, I've been there to visit just once wow. when I was actually having heart failure, so I wasn't able to stay very much or participate very much. I was I was pretty much incapacitated, but they were very friendly and helpful and nice and so Wow, and, uh, that sounds yeah. serious. Uh, yeah, it was. I barely could. I could barely drive. I was driving from Northwest Iowa back to Chicago in order to catch a flight home. And two, a couple of days before that, I had woken up in the middle of the night and couldn't breathe. I called my wife. You know, in the middle of the night, there, um, I can't breathe. I'm sitting. I have to sit up in order to try to breathe at all because it turned out my lungs were. I didn't. I thought it was something to do with my lungs directly. But it turned out that my lungs were filling up with fluid or around the, I don't know, in the lungs or around the lungs or my belly was full of fluid because my, cause my heart was failing, because my heart was beating three times too It didn't fast. occur to you to go to a hospital immediately? Uh, no, I don't know, no. <laughs> I, yeah, I guess I'm because I know we have good medical care here and I wouldn't have anything there arranged. I don't know. I don't know. It didn't occur to me, no. Um, because I just I I thought we had been to uh, a friend and I had been to uh, some kind of a little pioneer days in some little town in Iowa a few a couple of days before that where mm-hmm. they were burning rubber you know they were hot trucks would 
wind up the engine and then pop the brake and 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 pop the clutch or whatever and and burn rubber and there was smoke and we, of course we tried to avoid the smoke but I thought oh I must have gotten smoke in my lungs that must be something like that that's bothering me mm. and um, oh, so uh-huh. I managed to manage so I thought well you know it's not that big a deal so I got home that's typical when I had throat cancer I thought it was just a swollen um, uh, salivary gland <laughs> didn't I took a week before I and managed to get a doctor appointment because I thought this can't be anything serious um, but it can be um, anyway so yeah so my, but I managed to drive to Chicago I could I my plane landed in I had a stopover in Boston and I asked the attendant when I when it was time to get bored again you know could I go ahead because I can I could barely carry my hand luggage you know to get on the plane but I got home Eleanor met me and helped me get home with my luggage and and um we went into a doctor into the local uh clinic and I told the doctor this story and it was I think it was uh, I happened to be an African guy and I think he didn't – maybe he wasn't even a doctor. I don't know. But, I mean, because there are cases occasionally when somebody has pretended to be a doctor and gets a job and, and just not qualified. And this person he didn't, apparently didn't check me out at all because there's no notes. And I've looked in the journal. There's no notes from this visit. And I told him this story. So he gave me a, an inhaler, a cortisone inhaler, assuming that it was a lung problem. But must not have checked my heart because my heart was beating three times too fast. And so after a week, I wasn't getting any better. I could hardly, you know, I was laying in bed at home and and um, could hardly move. And finally, we went in again, and the doctor said, go straight to emergency. And Same they, doctor? They, uh, no, a different doctor now. Right. And they, and they um, took me, went, went to emergency, and they put me in for, they started doing all kinds of fancy tests and, and went in and checked my heart. You know, put in a, a thing through the vein and went in and looked, and I said, "Well, the heart is clean; it's not a heart problem there." They gave me drugs to pump to start getting rid of the fluid out of my body. You know, they could see what the problem was. I mean, the heart was beating so fast, and and they gave me drugs to slow that down. And eventually, they did a heart, what's called an ablation, which where they went in again through the vein in the in the groin and up to the heart, and they burn out a little patch. Apparently, my daughter's the doctor now, and explained to me that the the, the signal, the electrical signal for the heart, uh, it has to it has to trigger all four chambers, of course, in succession. And but that it can if it can make a shortcut, you know, a short circuit where it goes around too many times. And it was doing that, and so they burned out a little patch to break that path so that it couldn't do that. Oh. Apparently, and that's then it then it's been fine since then. Oh. And um, I'm on I'm on some heart medications, but they said that I have no greater risk than anybody else of having that happen again. So, oh wow! So yeah, that was so that's the, that's the third time I tell people I would be be bankrupt and and dead and three times over if it weren't for Swedish healthcare, because between the tongue-based cancer and the and the bladder cancer and the and the heart failure, why? Um, yeah, I've had my share. I'm getting my money's worth on the medical care anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, uh, the the group you're sitting with now, what's the uh, lineage? Yeah, it's well, it's Zen Vegan. It's, that means the Zen way in Swedish, um, and it's uh, I forget the names of the people, but it, it's it's very consciously not. We don't have little Buddha statues. We don't have. We don't do very much bowing. We don't do any. Uh, we don't do any floor, you know, prostrations. We don't do any chanting. 
And I prefer, personally, I like all those things. And we had a we had a, a new teacher. We invited a teacher to lead us for a, for a weekend sashin recently, and we did those things. And I liked them all. And the other people, and I was surprised because the other people were all like, "Oh, this! I'm not sure this is our way." You know, we don't. They they want a quote European way, which is apparently not really Buddhist. Although we've been we read it, we have a little reading group, and at my suggestion, we read Zen Mind Beginner's Mind and enjoyed reading that together and uh, discussing things. And we've read. Um, we're reading Three Pillars of Zen. We read some the beginning parts of Zen Flesh, Zen Bones, and um, we re- I got him to read the um, uh, Mountains and Rivers Sutra mm. because of um, when I was at the year that I was at Zen Center, lived at Zen Center before I went to Tassara. My I had a roommate who turned me on to the Mountains and Rivers Sutra, which I have loved ever since. And when I was at Tassara. I copied it over ten times, I think. On I got scrolls of butcher paper because scrolls seemed like like ancient monastic process, or you know, even right. from Egyptians or whatever. And so I got scrolls of butcher paper and I and I wrote out by hand the um, mountains and rivers sutra. I think at least ten times and, and sent them to various friends and relatives. One of them is in Anchorage, I think, in storage. Hmm. And uh, so I, I love that, and I don't have any idea what it's all about, but I loved it anyway. And so I got um, got the group here to read it, and we enjoyed that. So, hmm. but um, Zen Vegan, yeah, I was going. I was starting to explain a little bit. I I was sitting for a while with that group in Anchorage. We had we moved to D.C. and I didn't really ever find a group to sit with, and I would sit occasionally by myself. But sometimes um, I would sit. If I was upset, something would happen between me and Eleanor, and I'd be upset, and I realized I didn't want to just be angry or do, you know, whatever, but something that I would sit. And then Eleanor realized what was happening, and she'd say, so what's wrong now? And I and I wasn't ready to talk about it, so that put a stop to that, because I didn't want to be putting out that indication. So then I just went silent. I mean, I'm, I can be good at just being being silent, and, and, and it would have been better if I'd been sitting. But um, or, or, of course, if I'd been sitting... All the, you know, every day regularly. Then I wouldn't have needed to. Wouldn't right. have been obvious that now right. I'm upset about something. <laughs> right. But yes. so eventually, I was traveling, visiting my sister, several years in a row. And at first, I had been sick. It was right after the throat-based cancer, and she was super. She lives in Anchorage. She and her husband, and she was super solicitous and and everything. But by the, by the fourth year in a row that I was there for a few weeks in the summer, and then she was starting to treat me like she treats her husband, which is not good. And I was I was feeling very frustrated, and very, and I thought I need to be sitting I need to be sitting every day you know I need to do this so I went to Anchorage Sendo which I've been to before a few times and and um, and, and it helped to start actually from from it's a, kind of a derivative from that group that we had before and um, so I went there a few times and then since I came home I've been sitting regularly here and then a friend here. Um, Mentioned uh, a Democrat's abroad friend mentioned Zenveg, and she saw somewhere that I had sat Zen, had been involved with Zen before, and she mentioned Zenveg, and so I started sitting there with her. But I like the Soto style; I like the bowing and the chanting and and more formality, and so and so. Then I found out about a group here that that is in directly in that tradition, and I went and started sitting with them for a while. I sat there for about a year or two. And then, then we had a, there was a, a weird problem with the teacher, and I thought, no, I don't need this. So I dropped out of there, and I went back to Zenvegan. 
as I've been back with Zenvegan for a few years now. Yeah, I want Zen to Vegan say something I, about the name Zenvegan. Yeah. A vegan uh, there yeah. means way, am I correct? Yeah. Right. All right. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that needs to be explained because it sounds like a Zen group that's vegan that uh, doesn't eat <laughs> animal yeah. food. No. Yeah. All right. Right. No, it's vegan. It's V-A with A with two dots. Right. Vegan is a way, and E-N <laughs> makes it does in way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, yeah. When I first started sitting there, I thought, these people, they, they, they do Kenyan, but they do it too fast, I thought. And so... Um, so I, I, but I visited, uh, there's a Chan group here, a Chinese group, and they practically run around their space. Right. Um, one person, one person's legs were stiff from sitting and, you know, his leg was asleep and he couldn't walk. And some of the leaders said, just go around him. And I thought, what? <laughs> uh-huh. So we're zooming around, you know, but one interesting thing I found doing that is that everybody falls because we can hear the footsteps on the floor, right? Boom, 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 as we're walking quite fast around. And we all kind of fall into the same pattern, I think, which is kind of interesting. Uh-huh. So, But I thought, whoa, that's okay. So I guess then Vegan wasn't so fast after all. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, I, I, walk, I walk a lot, and I walk, I walk fast. I walk normally. I, I, uh-huh. I don't do the slow walking anymore. And... Uh, no. Except when I've done Vipassana retreats here, I walk a yeah. little slower. But I noticed in one of the retreats that the monk, Myanmar monk, was walking like normally when he did it. And uh, uh-huh. I, I did some of the things they do walking, but uh, here I just walk normally. But I yeah. do uh, I, I do three hours, not three hours, not at all three hours. I do three at least 3,000 steps a day. And uh, that's not so much. That's uh, that's just a little over a mile. You asked about if there was anything else about um, my visit to Johannesov, and something just occurred to me. Yes. Um, which is that uh, I was ex- we, we each had a chance to explain where we are in our practice and our, whatever. And I, w- I was last, I think. And... Um, which made sense since I was, you know, I was new and and didn't know the other people and whatever, and and so they went around and and uh, they came to me and I went through all this history a lot with them, and um, I mentioned when I mentioned that the thing about sitting when I was upset, and then my wife would say, so what's wrong now? And a few people laughed a little bit or something. They recognized that behavior, I think, mm-hmm. and. Um, and uh, and 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 then I went on and explained about when I was sitting and when my sister and then I decided I really need to be sitting all the time. And Baker Oshi started to say something. I think he thought I was I was finished now or something. And and um, he started to say something about uh, how it's interest practice with uh, with a wife with a with a spouse. Um, but I cut him off, and I didn't want to give up control yet. And I cut him off and said, uh, and with a sibling, <laughs> because I had just talked about, you know, because that's really what had gotten me back to sitting was, was this experience with my sibling. Um, but um, and then I went on and just briefly summed up that I now I was on my way to um, to Athens to tell him why I was there and so. But uh, in retrospect, I I'm, I've been interested. I would have enjoyed to hear what he had to say about about practice with a spouse, but I cut him off because I, I, I didn't want to finish it. And because I thought, I had, I, I have some friends in uh, Santa Fe who have been involved with a, an Indian 
a woman guru. I've, she called mother maybe or something. I oh, yeah, I know called. who that is. Yeah. I've, I've been hugged by her. Yeah, it's, exactly. She's known for giving hugs. Yeah, she's the hugging and, guru. I would talk by her in Santa Fe, yeah. Yeah, and there were, um, but apparently there have been some scandals or something and some <clears throat> some thing about gurus. And, there's a, and so my friends turned me on to a book which I didn't get that much out of, actually, but it was about about guru. I forget the name of it exactly, but it's about it's kind of putting down the whole guru idea, and which I think I don't know. I'm I'm uh, I wonder a little sometimes. I wonder sometimes. We hear stories about the the master who who broke the student's arm, and suddenly the student was enlightened. And I wonder if the if the student realized this guy's crazy, you know, <laughs> that's what he was. I mean, what did he, he realize something? What did he realize? Maybe he realized this guy's crazy. I don't like um, any Zen stories that have mutilation or yeah. stuff like that in them because yeah. all I think, oh, God, people are going to take this literally. I mean, Bodhi Dharma did uh-huh. not cut his eyelids off. Also, uh-huh. uh, what's his uh, disciple's name? E- Eka? Or something, yeah, the, the, the one who got he gave transmission. That guy did not cut his arm off and bring it to him uh-huh. to show him. Uh-huh. Um, uh, you know, uh, the, the Philip Kaplos group had a guy who got carried away by the story of the monk who held a, a knife at his heart and said, "If I'm not enlightened, you know, in this sitting, I will stab myself." But he got enlightened. Uh-huh. Well, this guy uh-huh. did it with a gun, and he shot himself and killed himself. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I really don't like those stories. No, no. Yeah. And you know, so many the, uh, people take religion; they take all that stuff literally. Uh, yeah. I think it's better not to take anything literally. Uh, yeah. But uh, but we have we have a tendency. I've wondered if maybe you have some thought about this. I've wondered if it's like. Like um, in psychoanalysis, they talk about transference. I think when, uh, right. when you you know you kind of see this person as your parent or whatever, and then it's, but at some point you take it back. Maybe I, I, I don't know. I've never done psychoanalysis, but I, I don't know much about it. But um, I wonder if some of some of the experience with a teacher is like that. We put onto them all this authority or all you know. Yeah, we we see them, and it, but at some point we have to realize that. We, we've got it, and you know we're we're here too, and whatever. Our, we're our responsible for ourselves. Yeah, and uh, you know they're not ineffable. They're not ineffable. Yeah. They're not in in uh, what is it? The Pope is infallible. Pardon me. Yeah, infallible. They're not right, infallible, exactly. yeah. uh, and they're treated as infallible. And the tradition, yeah. the the writings in the tradition. Uh, and and a lot of that's been written about uh, Zen gurus and Hindu gurus and stuff. It encourages this idea of the you know of infallibility. And and the most common thing to hear people say they'll hear something some teacher did they they are any some student did they say oh but I thought Buddhists were peaceful oh I thought mm-hmm. Buddhists were Jesus. Mm-hmm. Come on, they're just people. Mm-hmm. They're, uh, you know, you might as well say, I thought Christians were, well, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I I hear you. Yeah. 
<laughs> so I, so there was I had a, some of that feeling about guru uh, I felt in the group with there at Johannesoff that because people were very extremely respectful and they would wait for Baker Oshi to come in and and you know and people and everything was always directed to him and whatever and it was all it was all good but I just I just didn't want to I wanted to break that little bit of thing and I mentioned that to him also in my and I had Dokusan on the last morning there yeah and uh, good. said something to him about that um and he said, "Yeah, he's concerned about that too, but it's hard it's hard to know how to break that, you know, how to get people to loosen up or to to interact among themselves or to not treat him that way or something." And yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I I felt, you know, I really like Johannesoff and uh-huh. uh, um I felt that uh overall people uh weren't too much that way the ones I knew uh that, that uh, they were pre- I don't know they seemed less neurotic than uh, than uh, Americans you know they seemed uh-huh. sort of down to earth and uh, mm-hmm. in fact I took a analyst an, an analyst there uh-huh. uh, a, a Swiss analyst and neurologist that I've stayed with when I'm in Zurich and uh, he he had been a student many years of LaSalle who was the Catholic priest who taught in mm. Germany, taught Zen. Mm. And actually, LaSalle had wanted to give him transmission and everything. And, and uh, my friend is rather cynical, and, and, and he, did, he, he refused it. Uh, and so first, he and I went to Felsentor, uh, Vanya's place in the Alps. And, and Vanya mm. doesn't live there. He sort of lets them be on their own. And... He felt things there were a little too precious. And then he mm-hmm. drove me in his uh, convertible uh, Porsche to uh, uh-huh. to Johannesov, which is, you know, only about an hour away or an hour and a half away from Zurich. And uh, uh, we had lunch with people, talked with people. I showed him around. And when he got in his car to leave, he said, I like it here. I like the people here. They're normal. Mm-hmm. I thought that was the best compliment that uh, a guest could have made. Yeah, very nice. Yeah, um, I, and I like you. I like uh, Felsentor and Vanya's place, but I, uh, you know, at, at Johannesoff they treat me so well. Uh-huh. <laughs> that helps. You yeah. know, uh, uh, but at Felsentor, you know, they're they're. Uh, that you know, uh, I have to follow the schedule and work in the garden, and I, I'm, you know, I, uh, it's all right. I'm happy to do that, and just the whole thing. I'm. It's not as relaxed and everything, but I, I enjoy being there. Pissed me off that they have a a, a Buddhist bookstore that, that didn't carry two two books I had in German. Oh. Uh, they said, well, we have them in the library. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I said, How, this is probably one of the only Buddhist bookstores in the German-speaking world, and you're not carrying two books uh, huh? that are in the Shunyu Suzuki tradition. There's Soto's in. Yeah. There's nothing yeah. closer to them. But anyway, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. uh it's all right. I'll recover from that someday. <laughs> yeah. uh, <All> right. <laughs> but anyway, if you know, if if 
if you write books, you you got to you know you got to. Sure, you want to see them out there? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. Uh, But you know, mainly you'll notice that nobody cares as much as you do. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Mainly, nobody cares, and that's the best way is to just stay there, not care, just do what you got to do. Well, uh, all right, Rick. Are there any anything you want to say in conclusion? Nothing occurs to me right now. It's been very fun. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, you're good, man. You know you oh. you, you you are very focused when you talk and you stay on you. what you know, you stay on topic and you you weaved a nice thread there of your your spiritual path and the and your supposedly mundane path. Ha ha ha. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My my son in law said to me recently, my my daughter, as I mentioned, is a doctor, and her husband, they've been married a couple of years, is um, a programmer. And uh, we were out there helping to build, uh, he's building a garage and, and working on the landscaping and so on. And we were out there sitting around one day, and he said, uh, Rick, is it correct, would it be proper to say that you're spiritual? I said, sure, but who isn't? You know, yeah, right. What? <laughs> right. I agree. Yeah. You know, the, the Catholic... Um, Scholar, uh, I think it was a priest, so famous. God, I can't remember his name. Uh, yeah, right. Uh, he said, We're not like, I don't know what term to him. We're not like mortal beings looking for uh, our spiritual uh, uh, self. We're spiritual beings looking for it. Uh, something uh-huh. like that. Obviously, uh-huh. I don't have it down uh-huh. very well, but he starts uh-huh. with that. We are spiritual yeah. beings, and we we are you know looking to wake up. Uh, is, yeah. Uh, hmm. Okay. Well, that's a uh-huh. very good place to uh, say thanks a lot. I, I really enjoyed talking with you. I've Thank enjoyed you. being in touch with you My through pleasure. the years. Yeah. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Yeah. Well, you take care. Great. Yeah, absolutely. Look forward to staying in touch. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So thank you very much, Rick. Uh, Rick Wicks. Uh, Very interesting. Uh, Listen, um, uh, at the end there, I bring up uh, Pierre Telhardin. You're the one who remembered his name. Uh, and that quote of his, uh, it was very easy to find it. It's famous. We are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. I always liked that, <laughs> though I couldn't remember. <laughs> I couldn't remember it, but now it's embedded in my memory. So anyway, thanks a lot, Rick. And, uh, Look forward to getting more from you. Uh, you you write good reports. You send good reports. And it was great talking with you. And until next time, this is D.C. Poobav, Cuke Audio and Cuke Archives, coming to you from Sleepy Sanur with Doggett Bandita, guest Doggett Bumbita, 
Feline Manis and dear lovely Katrinka, and we're wishing you and yours and all of us a grand awakening.